You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 14th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. A new Ireland, nearly a week on from the election. Does anyone yet understand the contours of a reshaped political landscape? My guests from Monocle's editorial floor and bureaus around the world will be discussing this and the week's other big stories, including the current state of play in the race to be the Democratic nominee for President of the United States and... Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr Bond, I expect you to die. We now know what the new James Bond theme sounds like. Where does it rank on the spectrum from You Only Live Twice to Die Another Day? I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. First of all, another week, another upending of a long-established political order. The Republic of Ireland has spent the last six days attempting to understand what appears to be its new political reality. As of Saturday's election, it is no longer a two-party state, but a three-party state. That third party is Sinn Féin, suddenly elevated from the minor player they had long been outside Northern Ireland to the most popular party south of the border. Both the reasons for this and the consequences of this are going to take some understanding. As the results came in earlier this week, we heard from Naomi O'Leary, Politico correspondent for Ireland and the co-host of the podcast The Irish Passport. What we've seen now is that after landmark referendums to legalise gay marriage and abortion, the Irish electorate has again um, voted for an amazing change, a significant change. And it's really being driven by a young, growing population. This is the youngest country in Europe. It's got the fastest growing economy. And Sinn Féin emerged in exit polls as the most popular party among those aged 65 and under. Uh, So this shouldn't be understood as the rise of nationalism that you've seen in other parts of Europe. This uh, This isn't being driven by older voters. This is a young, uh, a young vote and it's a vote for change. Politico's Naomi O'Leary there on Monday's Globalist. Well, I'm joined with more about this now by Monocle 24's senior news producer and chief politics watcher, Rhys James. Um, Rhys, six days later, how weird does this still seem? It is a bit weird, to be honest, Andrew. Um, Sinn Féin had certainly been performing strongly in the polls in the run-up to the Irish election, uh, as Naomi just mentioned in that clip. Um, But I don't think even the party's leadership expected to win uh, a quarter of the votes. Uh, Politics in the Republic of Ireland Ireland has traditionally been dominated by two parties called Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael uh, since the 1920s, and it seems like voters are are sick of that duopoly. Um, And I think in, in many respects it was a protest vote. Was it just that, though? I think it's clear that there was a certain desire to stick it to Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael. Fianna Foyle still, I think, widely blamed uh, for the financial crisis of 2008. Fianna Gael perhaps blamed for not dealing well enough with the consequences of that. Was there a, a positive case that Sinn Féin made as well, though? Well, I think there are lots of reasons for their apparent success. Sinn Féin's obviously been a political force in Northern Ireland for a long time, but has never really kind of managed to cut through uh, in the Republic. Um, now, I was speaking to Dennis Murray uh, a few weeks ago Dennis uh, spent a number of years working as the BBC's island correspondent and he likened Sinn Féin's rise to that of the UK Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn uh, in 2017. Uh, And he said by focusing on issues that young people care about, like housing and health care,
Medicare. Uh, Sinn Féin were able to convince voters that they uh, represented a break from the traditional two-party system. Um, we don't know kind of to what extent, but Brexit certainly played a part. And I also think that um, younger Irish voters are, are less inclined to kind of care about Sinn Féin's kind of quite murky past as well. Well, murky past is, is one way of putting it, because for younger voters, it may not seem that much of an imperative. And there are, of course, people who voted at the weekend who've been born since the Good Friday Agreement. But I think for those of us of a, a certain age, there are other associations with Sinn Féin who were best known for many decades as the, well, that's what they were. They were the semi-respectable front organisation of an absolutely ruthless terrorist organisation. Yeah, absolutely. It's well documented that Sinn Féin acted as the political mouthpiece for the Irish Republican Army or IRA during a very kind of violent period uh, in the island's history. Um, Sinn Féin's former leaders, people like Martin McGuinness and uh, Gerry Adams, obviously were closely aligned to that kind of dissident republicanism. Um, these were people who, when I was kind of growing up, when I was watching the television when I was nine or ten years old, were heavily censored. Um, and you probably remember this as well, Andrew. Their, their words were actually voiced by actors because of views... Yes, yeah, so the Broadcasting Act, wasn't it? It was that glorious period when Margaret Thatcher decided that their voices could not be broadcast. Yeah, that's right. Their views were seen so dangerous that they had to get actors in to tell people what these people were saying. Apparently you couldn't hear Jerry Adams or Martin McGuinness because their views were kind of beyond the pale. Now, interestingly, the outgoing Irish Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, said in the run-up to the election that Sinn Féin weren't, uh, quote, a normal political party, unquote. And basically that's what he was alluding to, that this party was kind of beyond the pale. Well, it, it does prompt the big question. You, you mentioned, of course, Jerry Adams, who has been seen as the embodiment uh, of Sinn Féin throughout most of its modern existence and you know but was also regarded by every account of the troubles other than his own uh, as a senior commander of the IRA as well he stepped down as president in 2018 is that right there the difference do people now see Sinn Féin as something other than the the Jerry Adams experience Yes and no, I think. And I think they've changed to an extent. The party's new leader, Mary Lou Macdonald, she's certainly different from that kind of very hard-nosed and sentimental and compromising Northern uh, Irish kind of connection to the, to the party. Um, Macdonald's kind of a well-spoken middle-class Dubliner. She's been trying to kind of broaden the party's appeal. Um, and she's also clearly had some success in doing that, as we've seen from the, the results of the election. Now, Sinn Féin's promise to push for a united Ireland also has clearly resonated with people. Um, but as I think we're going to hear later in the programme as well, the party's also not helping itself on, on kind of occasions. Some of Sinn Féin's members have been criticised for singing rebel songs over the past week. And I think we could all kind of agree that's the sort of thing that should be consigned to kind of the dustbin of history. Well, finally then, and just quickly, I will invite you to beclown yourself by gazing into your crystal ball and telling us what happens next. And I, I should stress to listeners <laughs> that it's, it's very likely that there are a lot of very senior people in Irish politics who would be presently not able to answer that question. Well, I think the one thing that we, we know for absolute certainty is that Sinn Féin's going to be given the chance to form a government. But that's obviously easier said than done. Uh, the party's already conceded that even if all the other left-leaning parties come together, they're going to fall short of an overall majority. Um, so in all honesty, um, it's hard to say what is it exactly is going to happen now, but it's not inconceivable that Irish voters are going to be heading back to the polls, Andrew. Rhys James, thank you very much for joining us. There will be more on Ireland and what might happen next uh, in tomorrow's new edition of The Foreign Desk. That goes live at midday London time. You can, of course, catch up with that and all our other broadcasting whenever you like on our website. You are listening to Monocle's House View.
We move on now to the United States, where the circuses attending the candidates for the Democratic Party's nomination for president have folded their tents in New Hampshire and are now setting their sights on the next big-ticket event of primary season, the ninth Countum Democratic debate, which will occur in Las Vegas next Wednesday and will prompt any amount of laboured persiflage about who beat the House and who lost their shirt. But is the form established in New Hampshire going to be any guide? Monocle's US election correspondent Thomas Lewis, who was in New Hampshire and has folded his tent, uh, joins us with more. Um, Thomas, apart from what we all could have learnt by just reading the results, um, what did you learn in New Hampshire? Well, I learned uh, maybe something that sounds quite obvious, Andrew, at this stage, but that the choice is really quite split um, at the moment still. I think what I also learned is that the Democrats are sort of struggling slightly in how to deal with that. I feel as though there is a sense of trying to utilise politics as usual, if you like, in how to uh, discuss your opponents or how to address the victory of someone uh, who isn't you in a moment when the candidates feel is a very, very strong. Um, and obviously the, the president they're trying to oust is, is so extraordinary in many ways. So you look at how Pete Buttigieg, for example, who came a very strong second and who really has the sort of uh, had the um, extraordinary story of this Democratic campaign so far. You know, he has polled very badly, for example, with people of colour. And that's uh, in the states that vote next, first in Nevada next week and then South Carolina after that. Uh, those uh, electorates are very mixed for the Democrats. And the opinion polls for those just haven't budged for him in a positive way at all. So instead, he's going on quite a measured political attack on Bernie Sanders without trying to be too sort of um, out in the open about trying to bring Sanders down, uh, but playing politics as usual, which I think is kind of interesting, given that a lot of the political rules have been broken by Donald Trump's presidency, of course, and by the climate in other ways that we're in at the moment. So, Thomas, when you were out and about in New Hampshire talking to the voters, were you able to gain any insight into what might have prompted what I guess look like the, the two most surprising aspects of the New Hampshire result, which is that Joe Biden tanked almost completely and Elizabeth Warren tanked rather badly? Well, I think for Elizabeth Warren, she's in quite a difficult situation. She's stuck between two posts, really. You have the the sort of Bernie Sanders supporters who, um, you know, are from the same cloth, if you like, as the kind of politics that Elizabeth Warren and the kind of agenda that Elizabeth Warren is uh, putting forward for her campaign for the White House. But there's this narrative that sprung up among them that she kind of isn't really a genuine progressive, that she's actually sort of beholden to more centrist, more corporate uh, forces behind the scenes. So they don't really trust her in that score. And then you have the other side of the argument, the more centrist side, uh, that sees her agenda as just far too radical. So, you know, when I was speaking to Elizabeth Warren supporters in New Hampshire, um, they were spoke so fondly of her and so were so impressed by the campaign she's running. Um, I just think uh, she's just found herself, as I said, stuck between two posts slightly. And given that the roster is still so strong of candidates and so mixed, I think it's unfortunate that she has kind of just slightly slipped between the cracks almost. But she keeps saying that, um, you know, this is going to be a long and contested primary process. And I think that's what a lot of the candidates are 
are hoping for. Joe Biden particularly, he left New Hampshire early. He didn't even go to his own uh, electionite party. He went straight down to uh, South Carolina where he thinks he can rescue his campaign there. If Joe Biden doesn't secure sort of the majority of black voters in South Carolina, I think that surely must be uh, the end of his campaign. Because, of course, we have the factor of Michael Bloomberg, who hasn't really been tested yet in the polls, but has been ploughing a lot of money and TV ads into South Carolina and also into the Super Tuesday states that vote on the 3rd of March. So, you know, it's really what's quite interesting as well, just briefly, is speaking to voters. So many voters appeared to have made their mind up for the New Hampshire primary kind of on the spot almost. That there was so much choice that they decided almost as soon as they went in to the voting, uh, voting booth, which means that the ideology of all of this is slightly flexible, I think, for a lot of voters, uh, which means, you know, it's pretty hard to predict how they'll go as this race goes on. Thomas Lewis, thank you for joining us. In a moment on the House View, we will be hearing the new Bond theme tune and some opinions thereon. Do stay tuned. We are a matter of weeks away from the release of the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die, which, despite what the title suggests, is not about a man from Wolverhampton with an oversubscribed appointments diary. Thank you. I'm here all week. By way of fanfare, the theme tune has just been unleashed. You just heard it, or a fragment thereof. It is sung by the much-ballyhooed American warbler Billie Eilish, who, at just 18, is not only the youngest Bond theme singer ever, but barely older than Daniel Craig's tenure in the title role. Well, joining me now to determine the precise height of the plinth it should occupy in the pantheon of Bond themes are Monocle 24's Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Um, Paige, first of all, we will get into your individual likes and dislikes uh, presently, but in terms of the Bond theme as a genre, and it practically qualifies as one, um, are there particular tricks and tropes on which it has become reliant? Which buttons are they pushing? Yeah, so I think everyone generally knows uh, a Bond theme tune where they hear one, when they hear one. And if you don't recognise it as a Bond theme tune, then they've done something wrong. <laughs> uh, when I was looking through our old uh, sort of Bond, Bond theme tunes, they've been one that struck me uh, was Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon, which really doesn't fit. Uh, it's a great song, but it doesn't fit in that kind of spooky, harmonic world in, in the really? same way. Yeah, yeah. OK. Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me. I, no, I'm familiar that. with the song. I think it's... I, I actually quite like it. And I, I once heard Radiohead encore with a very, very good version of it, which might have worked better as, as, as a Bond theme. But why do you think that one doesn't quite fit? It doesn't. It doesn't have these really sort of like harmonic sort of hallmarks that a lot of the James Bond theme tunes do. And I guess the, the world in which they sit was kind of... Uh, was created by the first James Bond theme, which was for Dr. No, um, which was written by Monty Norman. Um, and they use a really specific chord in this song. They use a uh, minor major ninth, which is essentially for anyone who's a bit of a, a music nerd. It's 
it's a normal minor triad as as the bass, but then they use a major seventh and a major ninth. And what this gives you is this real tension in the sound. It's a really suspenseful sound, and it's it's a bit kind of off-putting. You're not quite sure what you're hearing. And I think there's always this uh, sort of uh, uh, ambiguity to the harmony in in James Bond songs, which give them their kind of um, their allure. I think and. Billie Eilish has completely paid uh, homage to this. She uses that exact same chord, albeit in a, in, a, in a different key. And actually, the only bit of the Billie Eilish song I'm not so keen on is right at the end. There's uh, a sort of guitar chord, um, which is this exact chord, which feels a little bit... I feel it takes away from the rest of the song, which is pretty classy. Um, but, you know, sometimes you just have to do what, what you've got to do when it's James Bond. Well, that's the theory. Let's look at the practice and let's discuss uh, our favourite Bond films. I mean, the correct answer, not Bond films, Bond themes, the correct answer to which is the best Bond theme is, of course, uh, You Only Live Twice by Nancy Sinatra. But, Fernando, first, you, I believe, have a wrong answer to that question. I do have a wrong answer and I do, <laughs> and I feel guilty because, I mean, you, you mentioned Carly Simon. I think my favorite song for for different reasons it actually goes completely against the trend as well it is quite a tense song but it's very icy very electro it's very madonna i'm sorry <laughs> i mean i think we do have a clip of diana today and i know it's very divisive i know the james bond fans might you know might threaten me but shall we play a little bit of the song let's do that <laughs> Sharp as an ice picker. Die another day. Madonna <laughs> doing exactly that. Um, Paige, you were going to pick one which does have what you identified as the Bond chord in it. Before we get to that, I think we have a clip of the actual Bond chord, which we should hear, and it sounds like this. <laughs> The Bond there chord. It is. Now, your, your particular favourite does contain the Bond chord, which sounds like the name of a band in itself. <laughs> um, but your choice is which? So, again, my choice is definitely. I, I was sort of looking up online before doing this. I was looking at sort of the people rating them all, and, and nobody really agrees with me. Quite a few people. Think there's, this is, there's some very angry think, people on the internet. That this is with, not with, with opinions about this. Think that this is not one of the good. James Bond themes but I just love Jack White I like Alicia Keys I think this has got like traditional elements to it but it's also got a nice like modern feel so we're going to hear a bit of that now I quite like that one as well. I, yeah. I, I, I quite like it as well, no, Pedro. I, I, I liked the idea of doing a, a punk rock take on the James Bond theme. But you're right, that is recognisably a Bond theme. 
Yeah, exactly. It's 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 got that chord in it. It's got uh, that sort of instrumentation as well. I think most of the the really sort of recognisable Bond themes start out quite kind of austere, and then they, the the instrumentation grows in these kind of waves, and you often have kind of a a classic sort of electric guitar that comes in that ushers in the chorus. Um, and I think that that song has that. So um, I, I am myself a big fan of Guns and Roses' absolutely bizarre version of Paul McCartney's "Live and Let Die," especially the bit in the where for reasons still surpassing my understanding, Axl Rose shrieks, give me some reggae. I'm not familiar, it's Andrew, I, and it's, it's a, a shame, clearly. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great moment, and I, I do urge everybody to look it up. Um, Fernando, in terms of the contenders for the title of Greatest Bond Theme, I believe you have another wrong answer. And yes, it's quite cheesy, but again, it represents the 80s excess. It represents, I think, very much the Roger Moore era of James Bond, in a way, uh, which is, of course, Duran Duran, A View to a Kill. I mean, it is a great song. Let's hear it. <laughs> Paige, it's got the big brass stab there, but does it does yeah. it really qualify? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not getting I'm not getting that sort of that spooky sense. I'm not getting the tension. It's not that, classy, that I, that I admit. It. But I think I think the most interesting one of the most interesting things about Bond themes um are that while it is important to have a good theme song, this isn't it's not really about that. I think it's about it's there's a real business angle to this. You know, this is such a good marketing ploy for the film franchise to sort of tap on the shoulders of the sort of biggest singers and biggest artists of the day to create a song. Everyone's winning. You know, the artists win, they get huge royalties for this kind of thing. And and James Bond wins. I mean, we talk about the fact that the relevance of Bond is definitely fading. It's not sort of like keeping up with, with the Joneses per se. So getting in Billie Eilish, who's 18 and just swept up four Grammys, it kind of works. And even if you look at the more recent ones, like Adele's Skyfall, I, think, I believe you got the Oscars for it. it, did very well in the charts, so very much so I agree with you, Paige. It's really important, uh, you know, for the Bond uh, brand, in a way. Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Paige Reynolds, thank you both for joining us. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, our weekly reflection on what lessons the last seven days have thrashed into us. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio manager was Nora Hull. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie. Monocle's House View is back tomorrow, Saturday at 9am London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs>